gravity of the crimes charged. Indicted and on the way to Miami. You're watching Joe Biden try to jail his leading political opponent. South Florida at ground zero as law and politics collide. The roundtable is back live. Messi to Miami. He's my favorite player of all time. Now I'm kicking myself for not getting season tickets. Messy situation at the Fort Lauderdale Stadium. They will have to have made alternative arrangements for their uh, their patrons to park. The commissioner with us live. What was represented to them, what they were told. More Florida migrant flights. Oh, ya llegamos a California, gracias a Dios. This time to Sacramento. Investigations are underway, criminal and civil. We are on the ground now in California to determine whether or not that same fact pattern that we saw in Massachusetts exists. All live, the big news of the week, all eyes on South Florida, this week in South Florida. Good Sunday morning. I'm Glenna Milberg. Once again, South Florida is about to become the center of the news universe. The history-making 37-count indictment against a former president of the United States lands at the federal courthouse in Miami in about 48 hours. The indictment unsealed Friday outlines charges and evidence that Donald Trump unlawfully kept classified documents and then tried to cover it up and cover up the wrongdoing that potentially endangered the security of the United States and those in service to protect and defend. from a South Florida lens, that's what we do here, with a group deep in the weeds with South Florida crime and politics. Some introductions first. Mark Caputo is national political uh, reporter for a new publication called The Messenger, nationwide publication. Dick Gregory retired from the U.S. Attorney's Office a few years ago after several decades prosecuting some of the highest profile defendants to come through Miami Federal Court. Barbara Yanis is a former federal prosecutor as well, both in public corruption in New Jersey and then with DOJ in Mexico and is now in private practice. It is so great to have everyone here at the table for our first Thank real you. roundtable since COVID. <laughs> so welcome. So I want to um, I want to first get to like a real South Florida look at what is going on because all the nationals and all the cables talk about this for the, over the weekend. Dick, let's start with you. Why Miami? Why is this in Miami? Well, I mean, this uh, case primarily happened at Mar-a-Lago, which is in Palm Beach County. And I think you have to understand the local rules here a little bit. Uh, cases that happen where the Palm Beach Courthouse are is the, the counties uh, there would bring a case to the Palm Beach Courthouse. Southern, Southern District. Southern District of yeah. Florida. It has to be in the Southern District of Florida, but they divide the cases up. You know, Key West, Miami, Fort Lauderdale, Palm Beach, and Fort Pierce. Uh, this is a, a, a Fort uh, this is not a Fort Pierce case, it's a Palm Beach case, but uh, one of the judges that's assigned to that northern division is Judge Cannon, and it appears the case has been assigned there. Uh, but the defendant is being brought to uh, uh, Miami for his first appearance. On and Tuesday. So, we'll on Tuesday. All about that. Yes. You, Mark, you were saying before the show, you have, you've seen evidence that it will be in Fort Pierce eventually? Well, we've gotten some indication to Dick's point about the rules. Though it's a Palm Beach County case, in the Southern District's rules, uh, a judge that's adjacent to the, the division where it is can take the case if the judges in that division are too busy. 
and in this case that's Judge Cannon, and she's based in Fort Pierce. Uh, we also have uh, word from inside the Southern District that they are preparing for the trial to be in Fort Pierce. And the Trump campaign and the Trump legal team, to the degree that they're segregable, uh, both believe that it's going to be tried in Fort Pierce. But then some people think Miami. No one seemed to really know. And so those of us in news are saying, no, darn, not Fort Pierce. <laughs> so is this, Barbara, is this, um, you know, Miami is a really interesting place, as we all know. And, and is this sort of politically or legally a plus or a minus for the former president? Or, or both in some ways? Well, I think, like you said, both in some ways. Uh, of course, Miami is a very attractive venue just because it's a hot spot right now. Um, but one of the things that's unique about Miami in terms of federal districts, it's that the cases tend to move quickly. Once a case is indicted, unlike in other districts where there's more of a tendency to have continuances uh, in Miami, which is sort of it, it, by some known as the rocket docket district, uh, things tend to move more quickly. Of course, uh, we all expect Trump's team uh, to fight everything and appeal everything, and so that's probably going to prolong the process. Um, but in, in the sense that it's going to move more quickly than in other districts, I think it's you know both a plus and a minus. So as a you know, let's let's just say wherever this is going to end up, aside from you know the initial first appearance on Tuesday. As a, as a prosecutor, Dick, you're going to have a jury of peers. How would you sort of, what, what's the first thing you would do? How are you going to lay this out? What do they have to understand in a very politically charged atmosphere? I, I don't think uh, people give jurors enough credit. Uh, having talked to jurors after trials have been over, uh, Jurors take very seriously their duty, especially in a case like this. They're going to get called in and, and told, this is the former president of the United States. There's going to be no question about that. That's right there at the, the head of the indictment. So, no uh, one's not going to know that. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I, I think that any juror that's called to this case is going to take his, his or her duty very, very seriously. And um, this is really not a political corruption case. It's a national security case involving political figures. And it's very interesting to, to, to take a look at this. Uh, I know there's been a lot of complaint that the president says, oh, they're treating me uh, uh, unusually. I'm a special character. But that's not the case at all. If you look at this poor uh, military guy that was arrested in Massachusetts, the U.S. military went out with armed soldiers and arrested this guy. He was thrown in jail, and he hasn't seen the light of day since. So President Trump was sent a summons and asked, please come in next Tuesday to, 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 to show whether you're going to be arraigned or not. Well, we, we kind of saw, you know, it was state court in New York, not, not federal court, but we saw this process play out in President Trump when he was indicted in New York State. The process was what the process was. The, the, the special arrangements were for security as such, right? I mean, you, you were there. I wasn't in New York for that. Oh, you no, weren't in New York? I was York? not, no. I, I missed that one. I was in New York. I thought, I thought you were there with No, us. everyone seemed to be. The, 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 I, everyone else was in New York. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, as the political reporter here, I, you know, when Dick says, like, some people don't give jurors enough credit, I'm among them uh, who probably don't give jurors enough credit, so to speak. Well, uh, let me tell you, I was a juror, so mm -hmm. I will tell you firsthand, there are some you can give complete credit to and some you can't. And that's the thing, is that he, the, the prosecution ultimately needs to win 12 votes, like unanimous decision. Yeah. And uh, generally your jury pool is going to reflect your county 
And so if you look at how people voted in Miami-Dade County. 44%, 46% uh, of voters in Miami-Dade County voted for Trump in 2020. Mm -hmm. That's roughly five in 12 jurors that are possibly pro-Trump. Palm Beach County, it's 43%. It's roughly five in 12. And then Fort Pierce, St. Lucie County, that's six in 12. That's half of a potential jury pool is a Trump voter. So then the question becomes, okay, you're, you're gonna sit there and your jury is being chosen, Barbara. Do you care who they voted for? Do you trust that a, a voter can walk in and say, this is my party, I'm a conservative, I'm a, I'm a liberal, this is how I feel politically, but I'm in a legal court of law now and I have instructions to follow. Do you trust that that will happen? Generally, yes. Um, I'm with Richard on that, but, but look, at the end of the day, jurors are people. And even if they want to do the right thing, their feelings uh, and their context, internal context, may affect the decision that they ultimately take. Um, but the other thing to take into account is that the there is a number of strikes that each side will have in a criminal case to eliminate jurors for basically any reason they want. They don't have to be for a specific cause. And the defense will have more strikes than the prosecution. That means the defense has a better chance of getting the jury they want than the prosecution does. And so this is obviously going to be another helpful thing for uh, the defendants. And there's, there is no way, I'm assuming, even though the judge is going to say, presumably, you can't look at social media, don't read the newspaper. I mean, how, how does that work? I don't know how that works. And what Trump is doing, if you would have seen his press conference yesterday, if you would have seen the show prior to this one, Republicans And the are, emails. Uh, yeah, and the, and the emails. They, they are already sending out <laughs> yeah. the message that this is a witch hunt, this is not fair, et cetera. And essentially what they're building toward is jurors who are, who are just going to reject this case. And some of them might go in that jury pool and lie. And uh, one of Dick's former colleagues of the Southern District told me that the jury selection process here is going to look like a clown car with pitchforks. That's how he described it. Well, I, I'm going to have that graphic made right now. Uh, I, I, I want to <laughs> delve into that a little more. We're, okay. we're up against a break, so stay tuned because I want to get more into the indictment and, and what a lot of people think is a witch hunt. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Prosecutor Barbara Yanez, Mark Caputo, ace political reporter for The Messenger, Dick Gregory, also retired big time Miami former prosecutor with some of the really amazing cases <laughs> over the years. But so in the last break, um, clown car with pitchforks we ended on, I believe, uh, is how, and we've since learned that uh, your colleague and Miami Beach mayor and my friend Dan Gelber actually came up with that. So credit where credit is due. Uh, jury selection, an interesting way to describe that for the former president's well, I think this is a case <laughs> which would call for a jury questionnaire. So uh, if the clerk's office does this the way I would want to see it done, they will send a uh, questionnaire which will be agreed upon by both sides. Uh, and uh, you'll probably get a very large number of potential jurors who will receive it. Um, having done cases with questionnaires before, uh, they'll have to be reviewed, and, and uh, a number of jurors will be knocked out from their immediate answers. With what, what's your first question? Well, uh, the, the question would be, uh, are you able to sit fairly on this case uh, uh, knowing nothing more than, than uh, uh, the fact that there's been an indictment? Uh, you know, there are a number of people who are going to say, I'm so politically 
in, in, involved in this case that I, I, I couldn't rule fairly on. The thing is you rely on jurors to be truthful, to, to answer these things. They're, they're told in the questionnaire that they're being uh, uh, asked these questions under oath. You know, they're, they're being asked to be truthful. Um, this is the district where we tried Falcone and Magluta and had three jurors bought and paid for uh, who pled guilty to, to, to taking bribes. So it, it's, it's not that it's an impossible place to, to find people who will lie to you. On the other hand... The cocaine uh, cowboys days you're talking yes, about. Yes. So, but, so the Miami story, file that under Miami stories, and we can yes. have like a four-hour show oh, on we, we the rest of those. We would have to take a week for that, do, yes. Do you think, um, I want to get into the actual indictment, but I... Barbara, do you think there are jurors, in my experience, twice, being on a jury, I, and I, some of the most fascinating experiences of my life, anyone who tries to get out of it is making a huge mistake, but they do. Do you think this is one of those cases where people are going to want to try to get into it? There will be people who are fascinated by the case, and they're going to try to construct their answers so that they can be part of the jury pool. And there are people who are going to want to have nothing to do with this <laughs> yeah, case. <right. laughs> uh, I mean, I don't know if this is going to ultimately be an anonymous jury, uh, but if you're a juror on this case and you think it's appropriate to convict or not convict, either way, you're going to have a situation that in your personal life, maybe in your professional life, you may be affected, so you may not want to be on the jury. So I think we're going to have, I think we're going to have both. I think she points out a, a good point, which is that whoever wants to be on this jury should be looked at with suspicion, <laughs> and whoever doesn't want to be on this jury should probably be impressed into service. You would think this is just a very difficult case. Up is down, I mean, and down is up. Remember, all the rules that we've ever known are out the window because it's Donald Trump. The only thing that's not unprecedented about Donald Trump is to say something's unprecedented. So wouldn't it be, wouldn't it behoove attorneys to take that and turn it on its head and make this process so much process and so normal and so unexciting and so, you know, let's get into the narrative of the indictment a little bit. It, it really unspools this evidence that the special counsel found. It's got tape recordings of Donald Trump saying things that the special counsel finds very incriminating. It, it has photographs of where boxes of classified documents were stored. It goes into the reasons why this is so egregious. Why not just be very matter-of-fact about it? Well, I think that certainly uh, was what the prosecutor intended when he, he drafted a speaking indictment. Uh, I'm a big fan of speaking indictments. I like to take the best evidence you have and put it right there in the indictment because there, there isn't going to be much argument about it. This case is, is spectacular in that fact. Uh, it's very rare that you see an indictment with pictures in it. Uh, TV, we like pictures. <laughs> uh, an indictment where it quotes the defendant uh, uh, in recorded conversations. I mean, this is not a, a, a usual indictment. Um, speaking indictments sometimes are, are, are a little more usual, but, but uh, a speaking indictment in which uh, uh, the defendant himself is is quoted uh, in numerous parts of the indictment is is uh, is unusual but then this defendant is somebody who has a way to to, to uh, implicate himself in a lot of wrongdoing okay so so that said there are Republicans right now who who are calling this a witch hunt there you know th this morning on all the national talk shows there were Republicans in Congress coming out and saying the what about? What about Hillary? What about Hunter Biden? What what about Mike Pence had? So, 
as a address the the witch hunt accusation how do you get around the very real perception for a lot of Republicans that this is not fair well I don't think you can really get around it especially as I mentioned before just that that pressure and that messaging is just going to be absorbed by osmosis into people but as they could probably tell you better than I can those arguments can't stand in court you can't argue selective prosecution you know you know better than I would as I told, I'm sorry, go ahead. And I think that the prosecution, in fact, there, there may be motions to that effect. I would anticipate that the prosecution will say the defense should be barred from arguing that this is selective prosecution. Um, and that's something that's also probably going to be litigated. Is that, a, is that a defense? That's not a defense, is it? Well, you can sort of it's try Trump. to infuse <laughs> the air with that, with that theory and that sense so that like I said, jurors are people, and so that they have a sense of injustice. Um, and so it's a defense in a sense, even though it's not a technical defense. Uh, I, as I told uh, uh, Mark this morning, we were, we were talking about this as, as we came in. Uh, yeah, you I understand you got a lift. You're an Uber driver <laughs> now. I didn't even charge a tip. <laughs> you know, this is uh, unusual for me as a prosecutor. I wouldn't ride with the, the, with the press normally, but uh, in this instance, it was uh, very helpful to get here. Yeah, yeah I, we, I've got friends. Friendships like that, <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, uh, as I was saying to the, to him this morning, this is a case that is is going to be very difficult. And one of the things we haven't discussed this far is the Classified Information Procedures Act. You'll note in this indictment there are 32 counts in which they go specifically to specific documents that were that were. Uh, taken by Trump and, and hidden in, in Mar-a-Lago. Uh, these documents all contain classified information. They aren't laid out. They are sort of summarized in very short form in the indictment. Uh, there is going to have to be a discovery procedure that's going to lengthen this uh, pretrial process, which is going to be in the Classified Information Procedures Act. Uh, the judge is going to have to look at it. They're going to have to decide what the jury can see, what the public gets to see, how these documents are going to be treated, and that's going to be a very complex process. Yeah, it's, there's going to be a lot of rules. Oh, right. it, 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 it's going to be unusual because it's, I don't believe the jurors are going to actually get to see the documents themselves. Oh. They're going to get to see a summary or, or some agreed upon uh, uh, description of what's in there. Yeah, that'll be interesting. All right, um, quick break again, and we will be right back in a couple of minutes with more. segment of Roundtable with Mark Caputo, political reporter for The Messenger, Barbara Yanis, Dick Gregory, former prosecutors. Uh, Barbara, uh, what is the possible motive here? I'm, I'm reading, we're studying, we're looking at evidence. We've covered Donald Trump, but why? Why would he have not only brought back all of those documents, hid them, showed them to at least a writer and a publisher and a former PAC representative. Why? That is a question on everyone's mind and that all of us would like to have answered. I would just say hubris. Uh, I, I think uh, former President Trump just believed that he should have these. Whether that was legal or not legal didn't matter. That was what he was entitled to. That that's what he should have, and he didn't care what the implications of that were legally. And 
there's there's reason for him not to care because he's been able to overcome every other scenario where he where he's gotten in trouble legally. So if he wants the documents, he's going to keep them, and that's the only motive that I can see here. Would you have to? You don't have to prove motive, do you? No, I don't think this is a case that requires proof of motive. It will require proof of knowledge and intent, but. He seems to uh, admit to that rather regularly, so uh, it'll be interesting to see where they're going from there. And it's remarkable because, I mean, it's, what's really interesting about the case, to their point, is uh, this didn't have to happen. Like, uh, the, the National right, Archives right. just said, hey, give us the records back. It took him a year. He returned these boxes. They opened the box. There's classified records in there. They're like, oh, my God, what do we do? Like, these are librarians, okay? So they called the Justice Department, and the Justice Department says, okay, hey, Donald Trump, give us these documents back. And then this weird negotiation happened. And it basically, like symbolically, they basically said, there's a rake. Don't step on the rake. And Donald <laughs> Trump's like, there's the rake? They're like, yeah, OK, I'll step on it. And then bang, he, he almost worked for this indictment. So what do you think, politically, since you are the political reporter, mm -hmm. what does this do now to the unfolding Republican primary lineup? We don't know. Uh, what we saw with the Alvin Bragg indictment, if you actually look at the polling, the, the New York, the New York, yeah, yeah, the New York yeah. prosecutor. At that point, I mean, it's 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 almost like a, a call and response situation. He gets indicted, and then his poll numbers just go up in the Republican primary. Trump. Now, what we don't know is, were the was that low hanging fruit he was able to pick? Is there any more growth up there? Or at a certain point, are Republicans going to say, you know what? This is just too much chaos, it's too much stuff. Alvin Bragg, in the view of a lot of people, was a problematic prosecution that he's bringing. Yeah. Uh, there are far fewer people who see this as a problematic prosecution. And a lot more people tr trust the Justice Department than uh, Donald Trump and some of his supporters want you to, to know. Well, what about, um, what about the judge? I mean, he's got, by all accounts, if there was such a thing as a favorable judge. He appointed judge, her. Judge, he appointed her, yeah. and yeah. She's, she's already op opined in the records case in his favor. Well, as we've already mentioned, CEPA, the Classified Information Procedures Act, one of the first thing that's going to happen is she's going to have to review all of those documents, and the defense attorneys are going to have to be permitted to come in and see all of the documents, and I would be sure that they're going to make a motion not only for the ones that are mentioned in the indictment, but all the other documents that were pulled out of uh, uh, Trump's uh, home at Mar-a-Lago. And so you're going to see a rather lengthy pretrial procedure in which she's going to have to make rulings on exactly how those documents are disclosed to the jury and how the discovery proceeding is going to go forth, and they're all going to have to be cleared to, uh, to do that. That's going to be a, uh, a bit of a lengthy proceeding. SEPAs uh, are an interesting act, and in, uh, uh, cases of national security uh, that involve SEPA uh, get a bit complex. Barbara, I'm going to give you the last word here. Um, the judge needs to perform like a judge. She does, and this, <laughs> she does need to do that. And, and look, at the end of the day, we trust our judges, and we trust our system, and we trust our institutions. Uh, but we are all humans, and we make mistakes. The only thing that we have is that trust in our institutions, and I'm optimistic that this judge is going to see all of the perils uh, in this very visible, high, uh, high attention case, and that she will do what is right and what is fair and perform her duties. 48 hours from now, Miami Federal Court. You'll be there. I will. We'll be there. So will you. <laughs> you might have to hold my phone, by the way. I don't think I'm allowed to bring it up. Oh, in. you didn't fill out no, the form? No, I did. Oh. <laughs> anyway, I, I will say being in federal court without electronics 
It's really nice to be incommunicado for just a little while. <laughs> I'm just going to throw that out there. Barbianis, Mark Caputo, Dick Gregory. This has been so great, our little dinner party without the wine, so maybe we rectify that at some point. But thank you so much for being part of our first roundtable since COVID. Thank, thank, thank you, you for having us. And up next, Messi to Miami, but Fort Lauderdale first, where the Major League Soccer star comes to a team that just got some of its parking yanked. The man behind that is with us next. Earth shift beneath you this week, it might have been this. He's coming to Miami. The crown prince of Major League Soccer, Lionel Messi, confirmed he's taking his talents to South Beach. Actually, enter Miami, CF, but really at the moment, Fort Lauderdale, where the team plays while their new home stadium at Miami Freedom Park comes to fruition at some point. Ticket prices jumped for the game starting next month. South Florida's sports industry high-fived the possibilities of a soccer stardom, and that included Fort Lauderdale officials, who are also, right now, in a bit of a standoff with the team. Owners, soccer superstar David Beckham and Miami billionaire businessman Jorge Mas have not paid more than a million in permitting fees or fulfilled a promise to build a public park at the Fort Lauderdale Stadium. So the city took back some of its parking. John Herbst is the city commissioner for that district that includes the stadium who inherited the years-long dealings when he was elected last fall. And John Herbst is with us live today. So nice to see you, John. Thanks for being on the program. Good morning. Happy to be here. Thank you. So bring us up to date on this parking lot standoff, which happened actually before Lionel Messi said, I'm coming to Miami. Have you heard now from, from fans or from constituents? What set, set that scene for us? Uh, surprisingly, I really haven't heard much from anybody on this. I expected to have you know some outreach either from the team or, or at least you know representatives. Uh, and we haven't heard much of anything yet. I've seen a little bit of commentary online. But most of that is focused on encouraging the uh, the team to get its stadium built down in Miami because that's where most of the fan base comes from to begin with. So I think folks are excited to uh, to, to have that project move forward so they'll not have to drive to Fort Lauderdale to come to the games. <laughs> And yet, here we are, and here comes the summer, and, and I, I mean, we've seen here in the newsroom that interest and participation have skyrocketed. Tickets that were, what, less than $100 are now going for six and $700 for the matches. Um, so the, just so we get all of our facts right and bring people up to speed, it's not the parking fees are paid up by the team. It's not the parking fees for the parking lot. It's actually permitting fees for the building that was permitted and built three years ago. Is that right? That 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 is correct. So right, whenever you go to to construct anything, you pull a permit, and when you pull a permit, you pay the fees for the permits that you're pulling at the time you get the permit. Uh, in this case, Miami Beckham uh, never paid the fees up front, and they are still withholding payment on those fees several years later. It's a highly uh, unusual situation. This has never never happened. Uh, that I'm aware of. Did they say why? Is there a reason? So what they are hoping for is that we will pay them the cost of demolition for the two existing buildings that were on the site when they took them over. And what they'd like to do is offset the cost of the demolition with some of the building permit fees. So basically, uh, re re uh, 
you know, just get to get an offset for that, um, which is something that I've explained to him you can't do. The building permit fund is is legally separated from our general fund dollars. You can't commingle those. So the two issues are really non, not connected. They're not related in any way. But in their mind, you know, it's just two big pots of money. How, how much was the demolition? So they're claiming that the demolition was $6 million, but whether it was $6 million or, or any other amount is, uh, is not really relevant because the contract that they signed with us is called the Interim Comprehensive Agreement spells out very clearly that all costs of demolition will be borne by Miami Beckham. Uh, there is no obligation on the part of the city to fund any of that. Uh, I'll remind you and, and your listeners that they're getting 40 acres of prime property around our airport for a dollar a year and they pay no property taxes on it. Unlike their deal in Miami, where they're paying rent and they're paying property taxes, they have a sweetheart deal in Fort Lauderdale, which doesn't require them to pay anything. And uh, and so now they're not only are they not paying anything, they're actually asking the city to pay them, which is you know clearly unre unrealistic. And, and again, the contract is very, very clear that the total obligation for the demolition of the old buildings and the construction of their new stadium is solely on, on Miami Beckham. So you- They had had- I'm sorry, go ahead. Sure, no. So so they had had they had, had conversations with a prior city manager asking the city to participate in some of those costs. Um, but that's all those were. Those were those were conversations by an individual who has no authority to bind the city to anything. You know, when you're dealing with government, the only thing that's a final action is when it goes to the elected officials for a vote. Up until that point, all it is is a conversation. So, so they were in conversations and, and those conversations never led to a conclusion. Got it. So I just for the record, um, we reached out to Jorge Mas. I was hoping that he might be able to join us and, and maybe in, in the following Sundays he might. But it sounds like they were expecting sort of like a, a handshake deal. They were expecting to sort of rely on that going forward as things because the, the timelines have all gotten kind of um, upended by first by COVID and then various other things. And, and that's not unusual, frankly, if, if you watch sports industry and government deal with each other for better or worse, right? That's, that's how it's almost like abnormally normal. Well, I, I would I would you know share a slightly different perspective. There is no such thing in a handshake deal when you're doing a fifty a fifty year lease. There is no handshake deals on a fifty year lease. There's no handshake deals when you're spending hundreds of millions of dollars. We have a signed contract. The signed contract embodies all the terms and conditions that they agreed to and that we agreed to. They had their lawyers, both in-house counsel and outside counsel. They were well represented. They're a very large and sophisticated organization. This is not a mom and pop shop. Um, these are folks that deal with government all the time, and we had our attorneys looking at it. Everybody understood exactly what we were agreeing to it when we when we signed our contracts and when we voted on these. What they're simply trying to do is change the rules after the fact, which is unreasonable. You don't do that. You don't come back after you have a contract signed and you start doing work and you start spending money and say, we'd like to revisit the terms of the agreement that we've got with you. We, we, we want more. And uh, and so that's what we've been, you know, kind of negotiating about. We were trying to find a mediated settlement that uh, that was reasonable for all sides, uh, unfortunately. Um, and I participated in that mediation, and we weren't able to get to terms that uh, that we could live with. Let me ask I you mean, a we question. We did try. We had a nine hour, you know, nine hour mediation session. We did our best, but we simply couldn't bridge the gap. It was just 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 too large. Okay. Um, I'm curious if there, if an entity has unpaid building permit fees, how did they build? Well, they were under a very, very 
tight deadline to get the stadium constructed in order for them to meet the requirements of Major League Soccer to begin playing their next season. And so rather than wait for the full comprehensive agreement to be completed, they asked the city to put in an interim comprehensive agreement so that they could begin demolition of the two existing stadiums that were there and and hasten the construction. So they they move forward with uh, with a lot of speed. They got their stadium done. It's a beautiful stadium. Um, but uh, but they did not they did not follow all the procedures that should have been uh, followed in that process. And, and candidly, the city should have held them you know, to a, a greater level of, of diligence during that process. But we allowed them to move forward, never expecting that they were not going to come back and pay their bills. I mean, we simply never anticipated that. We thought we had reliable partners uh, and, and we moved forward in that spirit of partnership and collaboration. Is there any, I, are you expecting, let me ask you this way, are you expecting with um, Major League Soccer's undisputed largest star in the universe headed to this team, are you expecting any kind of public blowback, any kind of uh, people asking you to soften up and, and let things play out a little differently and, and maybe it will be a win-win for the team and the city and the fans? Sure, I, I wouldn't be surprised. I, I think my response to that, though, is if they have, and I know the numbers that I've seen floating around are in the neighborhood of two hundred million dollars a year. So, you know, my response is if you have two hundred million dollars a year to pay one player, I think you have one point three million dollars to pay your bills to the city. That's giving you a stadium for free. We're giving them again forty acres for a dollar a year for fifty years. I mean, that's that's unheard of. Uh, they're paying, I believe, four and a half million dollars to the city of Miami for the land that they're going to get there. They're paying property taxes. They're giving twenty five million dollars to the city of Miami to construct parks. Miami's got a good deal. We don't. John Herbst, I, I want people who might not know, not only are you a fairly new commissioner, but a very long time employee of the city of Fort Lauderdale as the auditor. Which um, which goes to a really hard line on the money stuff. So uh, that's well, that's, that's good context. That's my background. <laughs> yes, my, my 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 background is finance. So I've got 40 years of finance. I have an investment banking background. I, I I'm a CPA. I practiced in in public accounting. So yeah, my 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 whole professional life has been spent in in finance and accounting and and in the investment worlds. And it's what I know. And it's uh, and that's a big part of why I think the the commission has tasked me with leading the negotiations because this is the area that I that I work in. I understand I these deals. I participated in them and and I and I know that at the end of the day there's there's a, a good deal for both the team and the city. And and I've always approached collaboration with that in mind. We are so appreciative of your time, John Her John Herbst, Commissioner for Lauderdale. Thanks so much for being on the program and keep in touch on this. Thank you. My pleasure. Enjoyed it. Look forward to watching it again. Thanks. <laughs> Have a good day. You too. Up next, the Florida flights that took migrants from Texas to Sacramento. State contractors say they've helped them. Lawyers are on the ground thinking otherwise, and one of them is here next.
This time, the Florida State contractors who flew these migrants from border cities to Sacramento, California, they took video. They made it public, showing, they say, the process and their care. That transport followed the same M.O. as last fall's Florida paid flights of 50 migrants from the southern border here to Martha's Vineyard. But that then was planned and executed in secret and is currently the subject of a federal class action lawsuit against Governor Ron DeSantis and the contractors. The lawyers who filed that flew to Sacramento this week to meet with the new arrivals and gauge whether they should be part of the class in Mira and Albert with Lawyers for Civil Rights in Boston is live with us today with what they found. Really nice to have you on the program, Mary, and thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. What did you find? What, I, I know you yourself weren't there, but your colleagues that are in Sacramento, what did they learn? Sure. Our office uh, began getting calls over the weekend as word filtered out about the Sacramento flights, and we were able to mobilize immediately, and our attorneys were on the ground in California, like you said, shortly after the second flight arrived. Our uh, attorneys were investigating in particular whether migrants were deceived into boarding the flights, as was the case with our Martha's Vineyard clients. Uh, that fraud and that deception is what was illegal, and we are looking closely at whether that occurred with this new group. Um, we're keeping all of our options on the table as we're still investigating. But um, as you mentioned, just from some of the conversations that our attorneys were able to have with the migrants in Sacramento, we definitely did find some similarities uh, as was with the Martha's Vineyard situation. Similar to the Martha's Vineyard migrants, the Sacramento migrants were people who were in highly vulnerable positions when they were approached in El Paso, Texas. Uh, many of them had been staying outside of a shelter that they had already exceeded the number of days that they could be, so they were all in the streets uh, or in surrounding areas when they were first approached by uh, the individuals who so later... Let, let me just, uh, I, I don't mean to interrupt, but before you, before you make your case, <laughs> I, I really want to get a sense, and I want our viewers to have a sense of, you, you talk to these people. Um, I don't know if they're bona fide clients of yours yet. I don't want to breach any kind of confidentiality. But when you asked these people in Sacramento, what did they tell you? Right. So, it, like I said, it's similar. There was a lot of similarities as there was with our Martha's Vineyard clients. Like, like what? Uh, for instance? A lot of these migrants talked about how uh, they were approached and they were made promises, promises to uh, have work. Uh, some of them said, like I said, they were in a very vulnerable position where a lot of them didn't have a roof over their head. So they were promised that they would have a roof over their head. And being in that very vulnerable position, that can be a very compelling and appealing offer, right? They they were led to believe that this was a good Samaritan effort and that it was that the efforts that were being coordinated on the other side uh, that there there was going to be coordinated efforts from different agencies that were going to expect their arrival. But as we all saw, of course, that wasn't the case. Similar as was the case with our clients, they were just simply deposited at the doorstep of a church. Right. Completely different from what they were expecting. Right. And the um, so the, the differences from then and from now, it, it, there, this program, the Migrant Transport Program, is codified in, in Florida law now voted upon in the legislature, signed by the governor, a, a big immigration bill when this is part of it. And in the contracts that have since gone out for requests for proposals and the whole governmental process and the three contractors who won, uh, Vertol Systems is the contractor who did this flight. 
they have to follow certain rules in that contract, which include housing and meals, uh, a voluntary sign-off from these people. And it also in the contract says that the contractors work with social services on the ground in the cities they fly to. And, and to your point, if these migrants were uh, timed out of the shelters and on the streets and had no hope and nowhere to go, why, why is this necessarily a bad thing? Well, again, they were made promises that things were going to be offered to them or available to them on the other side, right? That they were coordinating to make sure that that happened. But that was definitely not the case. They were just abandoned at the doorsteps of a church and kind of left to fend for themselves. Uh, and that that is, again, the, the fact, or, or our suit specifically, our class action suit, focuses on the fact that my, these migrants or our clients and potentially others who were induced to travel across state lines through fraud and misrepresentation on a part of Governor DeSantis and his conspirators, right? So that's what we're still investigating to see if, you know, they're, these specific migrants from the Sacramento flights are also class members, uh, but we already do see a lot of similarities. Have you been able to see the actual paper that they signed? We have video, uh, the video, comes, for the record, the video comes from the Florida Division of Emergency Management, which is the Florida department that oversees this program now. Um, it was handout video. It was not independently verified. That's just for the record, not that we have any doubt of what we're looking at or, or should have any doubt either way. Um, so the round table you're looking at right now is where Governor DeSantis kind of talked about it, but then the video shows them signing a piece of paper. They actually look very happy. They look um, like they're being well cared for. The paperwork that they signed volunteering to take this flight, have you been able to see that actual document? We've heard um, that some have signed releases. We don't know the circumstances around it. But um, what I can say is that similar to our clients in Martha's Vineyard, they were asked to sign a consent or release form, right, in exchange for gift cards and um, in addition to all of the false promises that were made for, uh, to them. So as I said, we're, we're still investigating whether that's the same fact pattern here that was replicated in Sacramento. Are you saying that was a quid pro quo that they had to sign to receive the gift card? Was that your understanding? Because we haven't seen that quid pro quo written anywhere. What our clients in the Martha's Vineyard situation told us was that uh, they were given a consent form or this release form and um, in exchange for signing it, they were given uh, the gift cards. And does the fact that Unlike last fall, does the fact that it is now Florida law with rules and procedures and contractors and a budget, does that change anything in this case for the Sacramento group? No, I mean, our, our lawsuit has a, a multitude of claims, both under federal law and um, a, a couple of state law claims. So, and as you mentioned, our case is currently pending in federal court in the District of Massachusetts. So we, we are still fully, we fully expect to hold the governor accountable for that conduct. Miriam Albert with Lawyers for Civil Rights in Boston. Appreciate your time. Thank you for explaining some of those things to us. And we'll be really looking forward to finding out what you find specifically with the Sacramento migrants. And I hope you'll keep in touch with us. Thank you for having me. All right.
and we will be right back. Stay tuned. right to the This Week in South Florida section of Local10.com. You know you are a big part of this program, and so please do connect. It's so easy on social media. Find and follow and reach out at Glenna WPLG. That's Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. As always, we thank you so much for being with us this hour. Remember, keep in touch.